the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome back and happy Wednesday, December 23rd, 2020. Taking on the request and task to define conservatism has come up a few times this week, and it seems to me we might as well get to it. There are, of course, different kinds of conservatives, and I've probably been appreciable of all of them at various times. I've learned as much from the Straussians as I have traditional neoconservatives and libertarians. I think it'd be fair to say we all agree on a few things. William Bennett and John Cribb put it in a nice acronym in their book, America the Strong. They came up with the acronym FLINT. Free enterprise, limited government, individual liberty, national defense, and traditional values. Of course, there are various ways to say these things or embrace them. One definition of conservatism I've always liked was an economics of liberty and a sociology of virtue. Tocqueville observed, it is quite understandable that when a nation is badly governed, it should develop a wish to govern itself. But he continues, a desire for independence of this kind, stemming as it does from a specific removable cause, the evil practices of despotic government, is bound to be short-lived. Once the circumstances giving rise to it have passed away, it languishes and what at first sight seemed a genuine love of liberty proves to have been merely hatred of a tyrant. This is the same thesis as another Frenchman, Jean-Francois Roosevelt, in his book, How Democracies Perish. He wrote, Clearly a civilization that feels guilty for everything it is and does will lack the energy and conviction to defend itself. So there are two things here, a memory and a cherishing of the circumstances that gave us our country. And here, of course, we'd be talking about the magnificence of our founding. And secondarily, a clear conviction that it is actually worth preserving as much as by it being worth defending. And it's a remarkable thing to me that the left has surrendered really both of those things. To them, our founding was not so remarkable. At best, it was racist and sexist. And this is the range, really, between Andrew Cuomo saying America was never that great and the 1619 Project and the idea that America was not that great or remarkable has become so very commonplace that it's really the default thinking now of the left and the universities and Hollywood and all our major institutions. And that leads the left to seeing us being the bitter fruit resultant of a poisonous tree, feeling guilty in defending our interests, feeling guilty in defending this country. That is the disease of dystopia and anime that has so characterized so much of the left and taken the near entirety of the Democratic Party with it. But back to us. 
Let's get at it this way. Charles Kessler writes, underlying our cold civil wars, the fact that America is torn increasingly between two rival constitutions, two cultures, two ways of life. Political scientists sometimes distinguish between normal politics and regime politics. Normal politics takes place within a political and constitutional order and concerns means, not ends. In other words, the ends or principles are agreed upon. Debate is simply over the means. By contrast, regime politics is about who rules and for what ends or principles. It questions the nature of the political system itself. Who has rights? Who gets to vote? What do we honor or revere together as a people? I fear America may be leaving the world of normal politics and entering the dangerous world of regime politics, he says, a politics in which our political loyalties diverge more and more as they did in the 1850s between two contrary visions of the country. One vision is based on the original Constitution as amended. This is the Constitution grounded in the natural rights of the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution written in 1787 and ratified in 1788. It has been transmitted to us with, of course, significant amendments, some improvements, some not. But it is recognizable still as the original Constitution. To simplify matters, we may call this the conservative Constitution, with the caveats that conservatives have never agreed perfectly on its meaning and that many non-conservatives also remain loyal to it. The other vision is based on what progressives and liberals have called the living Constitution. This term implies that the original Constitution is dead, or at least on life support, and that in order to remain relevant to our national life, the original Constitution must be infused with new meanings and new ends, and therefore new duties and rights and powers. To cite an example, new administrative agencies must be created to circumvent the structural limitations that the original Constitution imposed on government. As a doctrine, the living constitution originated in America's new departments of political and social science in the late 19th century, but it was soon at the very forefront of progressive politics. One of the doctrines, prime formulators Woodrow Wilson had contemplated as a young scholar a series of constitutional amendments to reform America's national government into a parliamentary system able to facilitate faster political change. But he quickly realized that his plan to amend the Constitution wouldn't go very far. So Plan B was what we have now, the living Constitution. While keeping the outward forms of the old Constitution, the idea of a living Constitution would change utterly the spirit in which the Constitution was understood. The resulting Constitution, the liberal Constitution, is not a Constitution of natural rights or individual human rights, but of historical or evolutionary rights. Wilson called the spirit of the old Constitution Newtonian after Isaac Newton, and that of the new Constitution Darwinian after Charles Darwin. By Darwinian, Wilson meant that instead of being difficult to amend, the liberal Constitution would be easily amenable to experimentation and adjustment or growth. To paraphrase Walter Burns, the point of the old Constitution was to keep the times in tune with the Constitution. The purpose of the new is to keep the Constitution in tune with the times. 
Until the 1960s, most liberals believed it was inevitable that their living constitution would replace the conservative constitution through a kind of slow-motion evolution. But during the 60s, the new left abandoned evolution for revolution, and partly in reaction to that, defenders of the old constitution began not merely to fight back, but to call for a return to America's first principles. By seeking to revolve back to the starting point, conservatives proved to be Newtonians after all, and also in a way revolutionary, since the original meaning of revolution is to return to where you began. The conservative campaign against the inevitable victory of the living constitution gained steam as a campaign against the gradual or sudden disappearance of limited government and of Republican virtue in our political life. And when it became clear by the late 1970s and 80s that the conservatives weren't going away, the Cold Civil War began. Confronted by sharper, deeper, and more compelling accounts of the conservative constitution, the liberals had to sharpen or radicalize their own alternative following the paths paved by the new left. As a result, the gap between the liberal conservative constitutions became wider to the extent that today we are two countries. We are fast on the road to becoming two countries, each constituted differently. Consider the contrast. The prevailing liberal doctrine of rights traces individual rights to memberships in various groups, racial, ethnic, gender, class, which are undergoing a continual process of consciousness raising and empowerment. This was already a prominent feature of the progressivism well over a century ago, though the groups have changed since then. Before Woodrow Wilson became a politician, for example, he wrote a political science textbook, and the book opened by asking which races should be studied. Wilson answered, we'll study the Aryan race because the Aryan race is the one that has mastered the world. The countries of Europe and the Anglophone countries are the conquerors and colonizers of other continents. They are the countries with the most advanced armaments, arts, and scientists. He said Wilson was perhaps not a racist in the full sense of the term because he expected the less advanced races over time to catch up with the Aryan race. But his emphasis was on group identity, an emphasis that liberals today retain, the only difference being that the winning and losing sides have been scrambled. Today, the white race and European civilization are the enemy, dead white males. It's a favored pejorative on American campuses. And the races and groups that were oppressed in the past are the ones that today need compensation or privileges and power. Conservatives, by contrast, regard the individual as the quintessential endangered minority. They trace individual rights to human nature, which lacks a race. Human nature also lacks ethnicity, gender, class. Conservatives trace the idea of rights to the essence, the essence of an individual as a human being. We have rights because we're human beings with souls, with reason, distinct from other animals, and also God. We're not beasts, but we're not God. We're the in-between. Conservatives seek to vindicate human equality and liberty, the basis for majority rule in politics, against the liberal constitution's alternative in which everything is increasingly based on group identity. There's also today a vast divergence between the liberal and conservative understandings of the First Amendment. Liberals are interested in transforming free speech in what they, in what they call, into what they call equal speech, ensuring that no one gets more than his fair share. They favor a redistribution of speech rights via limits on campaign contributions, repealing 
the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision in narrowing the First Amendment for the sake of redistribution of speech rights from rich to the poor. Not surprisingly, the Democratic Party's 2016 platform called for amending the First Amendment. There is, of course, also a big difference between the liberal constitution's freedom from religion and the conservative constitution's freedom of religion. And needless to say, the liberal constitution has no second amendment. In terms of government structure, the liberal constitution is designed to overcome the separation of powers and most other checks and balances. Liberals consistently support the increased ability to coordinate, concentrate, and enhance government power as opposed to dividing, restricting, and checking it. This is to the detriment of popular control of government. In recent decades, government power has flowed mainly through the hands of unelected administrators and judges to the point that elected members of Congress find themselves increasingly unable to legislate. As the Financial Times put it, Congress is a sausage factory that has forgotten how to make sausages. If one thinks about how America's cold civil war could be resolved, there seem to be only a few possibilities. One would be to change the political subject. Ronald Reagan used to say that when the little green men arrive from outer space, all of our political differences will be transcended and humanity will unite for the first major time in human history. Similarly, if some jarring event intervenes, a major war or calamity, it could reset our politics. We look today at what we're going through and we see that to be ever elusive. A second possibility we can't change the subject is that we could change our minds. Persuasion or some combination of persuasion and moderation might allow us to end or endure our great political division. Perhaps one party or side will persuade a significant majority of the electorate to embrace its constitution and thus win at the polling booth and in the legislatures. For generations, Republicans have have longed for a realigning election that would turn the GOP into America's majority party. This remains possible, but today seems unlikely. Only two presidents in the 20th century were able to endure change, were able to affect enduring changes in American public opinion and voting patterns. Franklin Roosevelt and Ronald Reagan. FDR inspired a political realignment that lasted for a generation or so and lifted the Democratic Party to majority status. Ronald Reagan inspired a realignment of public policy but wasn't quite able to make the GOP the majority party. Since about 1968, the norm in America has been divided government. The people have more often preferred to split control of the national government between the Democrats and Republicans rather than to fully entrust it into one party. This had not previously been the pattern of American politics. Prior to 1968, Americans would almost always entrust the Senate, the House of Representatives, and the presidency to the same party in each election. They would occasionally change the party, but they still would vote for a party to run the government. Not so over the last 50 years. And neither President Obama nor President Trump has persuaded the American electorate to embrace his party as their national representative, worthy of a longtime patriotic allegiance. And it seems to me the trend right now, given the cultural and the culture cultural institutions and the culture, is that we are, to use a phrase from the historian David McCullough, in pretty deep soup. We better get it right.
I'm Seth Leibson. We'll be right back. That's uh, for Joe Biden and Peter Ducey. If you're looking for <laughs> uplifting entertainment um, that will leave you inspired, I want to encourage you to go to SalemNow.com and watch Poor to CEO, the incredible journey of Herman Cain. He was loved by all his friends. He rose from humble beginnings to become the CEO of Godfather's Pizza. He was a presidential candidate. He won a battle over cancer. He was a tremendously successful radio host. Herman Cain was an amazing man. And his life embodied the values that we all esteem from belief in God to the power of personal responsibility, hard work, living each day with a big heart. Porta CEO is one of the most inspirational, entertaining films of the year. And you can watch it right now at SalemNow.com. That's SalemNow.com. Make sure to use the promo code PHOENIX and save 20%. Watch Porta CEO, The Herman Cain Story. At SalemNow.com. I got a ton to do, but on that uh, one-trick pony, our friend Charles writes, just what is a one-horse pony, which is what Biden called Peter Ducey? Did Joe Biden mean a one-trick pony or beating a dead horse? Two actual cliches that describe Biden himself. For years, we have seen President Trump condemned by way of his insults, but his insults are almost always directed at the high and mighty. And in comparison to Trump, Joe Biden insults just as much but gets a pass, even as the majority of Biden's insults are directed at groups of people and unknown guys who come up to him that doesn't have a megaphone that don't have megaphones to defend themselves. The press overlooks Biden's boorish behavior, of course. But with a laser focus instead concentrates on Trump's barbs that are usually laced with truths understood but not admitted or truths that have yet to be unfolded but will be. If Trump's biggest fault is transparency, then Biden's biggest fault is a lack of transparency as he runs from the media and insults him on his way out, unlike Trump, who prefers to face the media and have a showdown. That showdown could be sorely missed if Trump leaves the White House. All the media will be left with a bunch of dusty old cliches that Biden fails to deliver correctly and hurts no one but the little guy that has been long ignored by the media. Press likes to believe it is the little guy they are fighting for. In reality, it is their own little egos they are fighting for. And Trump unmasks that. Got to take a quick break. Alan, John, don't go away. We're going to get to you. We're going to have a lot of fun today as well. And get through a bunch of important stories, too. We're going to get it all done and wrapped up in a bow just in time for Christmas. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show, Christmas edition with John Dombrowski coming in with our culture and economy update and bringing tidings of potentially good news for 2021. He, of course of Grand Canyon Planning Associates, grandcanyonplanning.com. John Dombrowski, how the heck are you, man? Doing fantastic. You sent me a picture of a canide at your office, I take it. Yes. Who is this thing? Well, that's Ralphie. And? That's our baby. One of our babies, Ralphie. He when, was in, he's when, in my office When there. did you get Ralphie? Oh, he's about 13 or 14 years old. I've now. never met Ralphie. Yeah. I've known you 13 <laughs> or 14 years. I have never met Ralphie. 
Yeah, he's an interesting one, but he's so well-behaved. You could see him just kind of hanging there. I was at the end of the hall, and he sits right there in the office, doesn't cross the... That's what I do with Dagny here. Yeah, she yeah. just sits here. Of course, there's Ralph Wolf, which mm-hmm. I have sent you the cartoon of mm-hmm. before, who was the predecessor of the Wiley Coyote. That mm-hmm. would have been a great time <laughs> for you to talk to me about your Ralph Wolf, Well, I since would... all dogs come from wolves. The reason I sent that picture now... I don't course... know if Ralphie did. This yeah. doesn't yeah. look... Wolf-like. No, he's not pretty. He looks like wolf breakfast. He's a little chihuahua mix, yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, just looking at that picture, that's not really worth anything. It's worth something to me, Ralphie, of course. But today, of course, if you think about uh, some of the great painters of our time, Van Gogh, today is the day he cut off his ear. Back in, uh, I believe it was 1888. And uh, so is Ralph with his ears, Ralphie with his ears. Is he kind of laying low today? Yeah, but I wonder what uh, the value of uh, an investment in a Van Gogh painting would have been when you see, uh, you know, the value of some of his paintings. today. Maybe the picture of Ralphie will be. That's why I send it to you. That's my gift. Just don't touch his ears for for the holidays. I'm worried about his ears. (laughs) Talk to me. Remember when puppies used to be Christmas presents? Is anyone getting or giving a puppy for Christmas? I'd love to know that. I'm not, but that is, that's a great question yeah. for your listeners out there. It yes. really is. Yeah. Talk to me about why we think next year is going to be a good year economically. Well, you know, Seth, we obviously went through a really challenging time this year. Yep. And COVID was no one's fault here in this country, and we suffered because of it. And businesses, unfortunately, are going to never recover some businesses. But we have seen the semblance of some type of a V-shaped recovery. We've talked about this. Now, the fourth quarter numbers aren't in yet, and there might be a little bit of pullback in the fourth quarter. But I think moving forward, if the um, the COVID-19 vaccines that are happening right now are effective, and by all uh, of the experts out there, they're all very positive about what they believe is going to be the results of the vaccines, that means that we're going to get back to being able to, you know, gather in groups and being able to go out and shop and getting back to work. One of the big things with recession, Seth, we find is is that oftentimes when people lose their job, these were permanent uh, losses of jobs, where in this case, uh, many of the people who are on un- unemployment will get back to work. And that's ultimately going to help the economy grow once again. So I think that's true of a lot of places, like perhaps here. Mm-hmm. I worry about restaurants in New York well, and California that have had to close. Some have had yeah. to close here, too. But restaurants are, are a part of it, yes, yeah. and yeah. many restaurants. But that's not the largest no, correct. sector right. of this. Right. You know, true jobs uh, or businesses destroyed during the pandemic right. are going to most likely yeah. recover. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of those restaurants, as I said earlier in my comments, that, yes, a lot of businesses are not coming back, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, with the uh, economy and the the growth that we're going to start to see again in 2021, even those people who lost their jobs, who maybe were working in restaurants, will be able to find employment elsewhere. Okay. That's, that would be the hope. So, But overall, I do believe we're going to see a fairly prosperous 2021. Okay, good, good. Um I, I I just want us to never, you know, who was it? Mother Teresa who said, when you lose something, don't lose the lesson. Hmm. And I hope that um, we learned a lesson this year. And that is that um, you don't need to impose a depression on yourself and on your country, I should say. You don't need to do it. Um, I think we've learned that. Um, at least a lot of us have learned that. A lot of us knew it early on. It's taken yeah. a lot of damage to get to that understanding. And I suppose 
with uh, an, uh, a potential incoming Democratic administration here, a putative incoming Democratic administration, they're going to want to do everything they can to take credit for a, a, a recovered economy. And, you know, politics aside, that will be good for America. Uh, I believe you're correct yeah. in that respect. Yes, they were doing everything they can to blame things on the current administration. But now that there'll be a new administration, they're going to try to change and probably do a lot of the things that President Trump wanted to do. Well, uh, once, I want to wish you a very Merry yes. Christmas, John. Well, Seth, thank you so much. I wish you the best as well. A happy Hanukkah. Talk and, in a uh, couple of days. Yep. yep. God and, bless you, uh, sir. God bless you as well. Thank we'll talk you. before the new year. Thank you. you. Securities and advisory services offered to Client One Securities LLC, a member of Fender and Sipic, and an investment advisor, Grand King and Planning Associates LLC, and Client One Securities LLC are not affiliated. Take Thank care, you, sir. Bye bye. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Your show all three hours, 602 Want to hear from you. Anything on your mind? Uh, Alan, don't go away. I'll get to you in a moment. First, John in Peoria. Hello, John. Hello, sir. How are you? I am fine. Where are you off to? Where are you headed to? It's always somewhere interesting. Texas Roadhouse today, buddy. Nice. I'm going down there to have a nice steak dinner with my friend who's a cowboy actor, and he's acted with some of the big ones, like John Wayne and uh, a few other folks like that. So I'm going to have dinner with a him. A few other it's folks easy. like that. That reminds me once yeah. of someone telling Harry Jaffa to pick on someone his own size, and he said, there is no one my size. John yeah. Wayne and a few others like that. There's no one yeah, like he's... John Wayne. No, but, it, well, that's true. You're 100%. <laughs> Do they have a lobster tank at the Texas Roadhouse? No, they don't. Buddy. I want you to go to places with lobster tanks, John. I just, well, you know, you know, you know that's the sign of a good restaurant when they have a lobster tank. Oh, beautiful. But you know where I, uh, Ocean 44, yeah. that's a high-end place I like to go to. But they don't have and a lobster tank. Tricks. They don't have a lobster tank. That's true. Maybe, but they have beautiful display of seafood there. Y- at Ocean. Yes, I know that seafood on ice. I can go to, I can go to a store like um, AJ's and just sit there looking at the seafood and steak displays. I love that stuff. Ah, uh, so I love just looking at raw, uncooked seafood and and meat. I just do. It's is that weird? I guess I maybe shouldn't say that on air. Well, here's a restaurant that went by, but it was such a great place. It was that, um, yeah, I I think I know what you're going to say. I think I know it. I liked it for that very reason, and it it was at the Biltmore, wasn't it? Little Cleo's. Little Cleo's. No, I didn't know that one. Little Cleo's. Yeah, Little Cleo's. It was at the yard on, um, and it was part of the Fox restaurants. What was the one at the Biltmore that had, it was a Chicago-themed place, and it had uh, uncooked steaks, you know, in 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 the window display there? Was, oh yeah, the uh, dry aged. Uh, um, yeah, it had all that. Steak. Yeah, it had all those steaks there. It wasn't a super. High, it was kind of a middle to high end restaurant, I suppose. It was at the Biltmore Fashion Square. I can't remember it. Long gone. No, I, but I'll tell you one in New York, Gallagher Steakhouse in New York, an old steakhouse um, in New York, uh, in Manhattan. Oh, what a unbelievable! You, you know your place. stuff, John. You know your stuff. <laughs> hey, listen. Herr Professor, but I won't call you Oscar Taylor's. Oscar Taylor's. 
Oscar Taylor's, yes. That was yes. it. I remember that name, and I was there. Last time I, I was, was there, there was on my way to... My dad took me there for dinner. This is literally the last time I was there. My dad took me there for dinner, and then we went to the Jockey Club, if you remember that place, to see Maynard Ferguson. Wow. What a night that must have been. It was. It was. It was about two. No, I wasn't. Excellent. I wasn't. <laughs> I think I was in high school. <laughs> anyway, go on, buddy. Go on. No, I said, you're a professor, but I won't call you doctor. Excellent dissertation on the Constitution. Oh, thank uh, you. Thank you. Uh, thank the you. living and then uh, our, our Constitution, yeah. the original Constitution, right. you know, uh, uh, created and drafted by unbelievable men. Whenever you put a modifier in front of something, it means it's not that thing. You know, and so living yes. constitution means not the U.S. Constitution. Social exactly. justice not means our... not justice. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, people's um, democracy I... means not democracy. Right. Bill. Th- Bill said that. Thank you, Bill. Right. I completed my assignment that you gave me a couple of days ago, which was to was to. Uh, Read Newt Gingrich's uh, Why I'm Not Accepting yeah, Joe Biden. Yeah, yeah, and I didn't do it on air, but isn't that the best thing you've read on the election? Oh, that was so beautiful. Yeah. And here's the whole gist of it. It's not just what happened in this election, but it's what they did to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, what they did to Donald Trump, President Trump, Yeah. right from the very beginning of his presidency. Yeah. Through his presidency, it's amazing he got anything. It's amazing he got anything done, and he ended up getting more done than most. Can you? Do you have a degree in psychology? No, I don't. Social, social, social. I do have a degree. Okay. I do have a degree. Explain to me, my producer, because here's how this works, and I think it's true of almost every radio show. You get a call. Person's name is put on there with the town they're calling from and then it has like three or four words as to the topic they're calling about and i don't really go by topic i just go by who's been on hold the longest and you 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 were so i'll go to alan next because he's second longest but the three words that my producer bill put on your call were competing his assignment competing his assignment then i put you on the air and mysteriously, as I'm looking at your call here, it says now completing his assignment. Why do I need a correction? Are you the New York Times that just corrects things overnight without 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 making a statement about it and letting anyone know and hopefully no one will notice? Is that what you do, Bill? And why do you think I need the correction in media rest in the middle of my conversation with John? Like, I'm an, oh, completing. Let me put him on hold. I don't want to take that call. Is that what you're, why are you, what are you doing over there? Yeah, but then you corrected it for no reason. Yeah. Oh, for goodness sakes. John, what are you doing for Christmas? Uh, with the family, we might have a Chinese dinner Christmas. Are you Jewish? Are you Jewish? No, but I know a lot of Jewish people do that. Yeah, that's right. That's why I asked. That's why I asked. No, uh, but a lot of people think I am Jewish. Because of eating Chinese food on Christmas. 
No, because of other things. Because a lot of people have called me a mensch before. So oh, yeah, well, you are. You are a mensch. Yeah. Thank you. You bet. Thank you, my friend. There's a line. A- there's a line. Wait, don't go yet. There's a line in The Wizard of Oz. It's one of the most – there's several beautiful lines, and they all happen – when the group of Dorothy and the and the woodman, uh, the tin, the Tin Man and uh, the Lion and the Scarecrow all meet the Wizard, that's where it all that's where all the beautiful stuff that is said in the movie or in the book takes place. And there's a beautiful dialogue. It's sad, but it's beautiful between the Tin Man and um, the Wizard. And the Wizard tells the Tin Man, remember he's the one that wants the heart. The Wizard yeah. tells the Tin Man, um, a heart is not measured by how much it loves by but by how much it is loved by others others yeah and that's what makes you immense you are loved by many others sir you are loved by well, many others well thank you i appreciate that and i got two rabbis too even though i'm not jewish one is Dennis Prager yes hello yes one is Dennis Prager. oh i'm here at the back uh, Dennis Prager yeah, and uh, also there's a, a rabbi that's um, he's afflicted with uh, uh, ALS, yeah, Luke Eric's disease. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with that rabbi in uh, uh, Los Angeles. I don't think I am. Yeah, and I and I try to help that. Uh, uh, I donate to that rabbi. Oh my gosh, you are a mensch. You are a mensch. You are. Merry Christmas, John. Thank you, sir. God bless you. Be God right bless back. you. Lobster tanks and slow gins fizz. How great is that? Lobster tanks and slow gins fizz. Alan is in Phoenix. Hello, Alan. Well, good afternoon, Seth, and I'll have a slow gin fizz. When's the last time anyone said slow gin fizz? Probably in that song. Uh, yeah. As an old bartender, I had to serve a few of them. Can I ask you a question as an old bartender? Sure. Sure. I have a friend that really likes old school daiquiris that 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 is to say not the blended things you get with you know the fruity flavors but just a daiquiri in 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 a in a in a glass you know as as served in the movie sabrina with humphrey bogart and every time he goes to a restaurant and asks for one, they always say they don't have a blender. He says, no, I'll have an old-fashioned one or an old-school one. They say, oh, you want an old-fashioned? I thought like that was like one of the basic drinks you had to know how to make as a bartender. You do, but you can, you can just shake it, whatever. You, know, you can shake it like you do others, but people are just too lazy, and most bartenders nowadays don't know. They so just don't know. He wants a good one. Tell him go to Durant downtown. Their bartender will take care of. Him. Yeah, I bet they will. I'll tell them that. That's a good, steak, that's a good steakhouse, but with no lobster tank. Yeah, but no lobster tank. Gosh, if they had no a lobster, lobster tank, anyway. Uh, if they had a lobster. Yeah. What's on your mind Uh-oh. beyond that? Beyond the gustatory. Um, um, we can, you know. Obviously, nobody wants Joe Biden. Nobody voted for Joe Biden. Kamala couldn't sniff a vote, so nobody really wants them. But. You know, somebody's hated Tom's tone and whatever, so they're doing whatever they can to remove him. You know, what's nice is with this mess, Tulsi Gabbard's the only Democrat who makes any sense, and and she, like Trump, was an outsider. That's why they didn't want her to win the nomination, because she would be out against all this corruption like anybody else, unlike the Bidens trying to keep their criminal past from getting them. I mean, that's the only reason why they run. 
so why don't we do this? Why doesn't Trump and Tulsi get together, make a unity thing? They stay president for four more years and clean up the mess. He does two years. She gets two years. And she's not really as radical as all the rest of them. And we could have a nice balanced solution and move on and not have Biden and his his nurse ratchet standing right beside him while he gets his shot. You know what, um, you know what, uh, Alan, I, for a couple interesting things, I think this went by the way, Sut, I got to take a break. Do you want to stay around? Or do you yeah, got, I'll be around, yeah. You got to go? You, gotta, you can stay, you can stay uh, a while? I can stay a while, I just got to transfer once I get to my house. Yeah, do that. Do it. I'll, I'll give you, I'll, I'll give you a transfer like they used to do with buses. I want to address what you said about Tulsi. Uh, 602-508-0960. Yes, Charles. I, yes, the lobster, lobster tank exists at Red Lobster. Of course, that would be right. We'll be right back.